friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Welcome. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here and really excited to share with you this morning. We've been walking through a series on biblical revivals, what happens when God pours out his spirit amongst his people. Um, And really, again, every week, we just want to seep our lives in the stories of the scriptures about how God works and have our imaginations really get shaped and formed by who God is, what he does when we drift far from him, how he works, what it looks like for human beings to respond. Because if we're not careful, we'll get too used to our own resources, our own plans, our own intelligence, our own power, and we'll only seek those things rather than maybe expanding our vision to to ask what would happen if God showed up, if God works. So we're doing that each and every week. I'm going to promise you that this week will be less controversial than last week. There's no pictures of politicians uh, or anything like that. So um, take a break from that. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So if you got your Bible, if you would open your, your, your pew Bible um, and let's read along together. We're going to read this whole thing and just walk through and then make some applications at the end. All right. So. This story is the story of King Asa and how God worked in his life. So 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and, his, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. Asa bursts onto the scene and starts strong. I love it. Just jumps right in and say, listen, Asa, right off the bat, did what was right and good in the eyes of God. He also took out all of the cities of Judah, um, took out of all of the cities of Judah, the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. He had no war in those years for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side, so they built and prospered. I love Asa recognizes in the moment why they're doing well. This is key for us, right? As we live our lives, it can be easy just to get living and do well and find success and prosper in life and never ask the question, why is this happening? What's going on, right? And if we're not careful, we'll be like the Israelites that God warned in Deuteronomy. He says, listen, when you go into a land that you didn't plant and cities that you didn't build, filled with, house, uh, filled with like stuff and houses that you didn't buy, you would think to yourself, look at what my hands have done, right? And God said, if you're not careful, in the days of success and prosperity, you can misplace the credit, right? 
the glory. You can, you can misunderstand who all of this comes from and you can start to turn inward. And Asa, in this moment, I love, he says, this land is still ours. Why? Because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he has given us peace. We didn't win peace. He gave it to us. Life is grace, right? Even if you fought for it, even if you built and pride, even all these things, it's still the grace of God operating in your life that brings you peace. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah armed with large fields and spears and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marishah. So they are like feeling pretty good about their half a million army and then an army comes out that's doubled them in size. And Asa went out to meet him and they drew their lines of the battle in the valley of Zephathah and at Marishah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Again, I love how Asa postures himself appropriately in front of God. In this moment, he says, O God, you are the one who helps between the mighty and the weak. Look at how he humbles himself. Even though it's it's clear, right? He doesn't overestimate his position. He doesn't overestimate his ability. He actually sees that the task that God has given him is beyond his reach, right? But he also knows that God's called him to go out and fight this battle. So he postures himself humbly before God and he says, listen, of these two, I'm the weak one, God. I need your help. He says, it's you that we rely on and in your name we have come against this multitude. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord responds. The Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar and the Ethiopians fell until no one remained alive for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil. And they attacked all the cities around Gerar for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities for there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So we see God showing up on Asa's behalf as he lives into the call of kingship, the call that God had given him. And he trusts God, he seeks God, he relies on God, and God delivers. This is the story so far. So we move into chapter 15. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. What an incredible promise. If you seek him, he will be found by you. However, (laughs) if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. So Azariah places Asa in the middle of this long story between God and Israel. And just say, you know the history, you know the past, you understand what's happened before. When they were seeking God, they found him. And when they turned their backs on God, guess what they had? They had trouble. 
And for us today, many of us have grown up in church. We were raised in Christian families, and we have to continually remind ourselves of the memory of faith and spiritual legacy and heritage that God is found by those who seek him. He may seem absent in the moment, he may seem distant, and yet we can look back at family stories or we can look into the scriptures and see God shows up to deliver those who seek him. He wants to be found. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, or great distur- for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded." Again, you get these promises baked into the statement. I love that. Take courage. We talked about courage last week, right? Courage to move into risk, to risk vulnerability, to have authority with vulnerability, right? And this week we see Asa coming to this place of the Lord saying, hey, be courageous. Don't let your hands be weak. Why? Because your work will be rewarded. Uh, We have a, a puppy. Raise your hand if you have a puppy. Anyone here have a new puppy? Okay, it's awesome and terrible, right? And um, so to train a puppy, I don't know how many do like hardcore training, but um, it's really hard to train a puppy when you have six children. The, you know, because you're so like, which do I train, the human or the dog? And so sometimes our dog's less trained than when I was a single guy, I had the best dog in history. I trained her to literally go number two on the side of the house over by the neighbor's yard. Um, and literally, like, I'd send her out. I didn't have to go with her. She'd like, whoo, trot out and just poop right there. And it was just awesome. I was like, isn't that amazing? But I spent so much time with this dog. But we train dogs. How do you train a dog? What do you do for a dog when you're trying to train them? Treats, right? Rewards, right? So you're like, okay, sit, sit. And you treat right away. And they're like, okay, if they go to the bathroom in the right place, you reward them right away. And the, the key is right away you reward them, right? You sit, you lay down, you jump, you shake. I, my first dog, I could shoot her and she'd fall over dead. She'd just roll over and lay there and look at me. And like, is this enough? Seriously? And then I'd give her a treat, right? So you work and you get reward, Right? And it's the same thing with our kids, right? You, you catch them doing the right things. You tell them what the right things are to do. And when they do the right things, you reward them. You want to reward good behavior, right? You want to uh, catch them doing something right and reward them. And it's funny because I think there's such a hubbub in today's world in Christianity about prosperity gospel, right? There's like, oh, the most dangerous thing is prosperity gospel. And I, and I agree, prosperity gospel is false theology, all that stuff. But there's also, you can go the opposite way where all you talk about is the retribution of God, the wrath of God, and you never talk about the reward of God. That God rewards those who seek him. This promise comes to Asa, if you seek me, you will be found. That's reward number one. The first reward of seeking God is having God. <laughs> is finding him. And then if you find God, what happens is you start to find how God sees the world and you start to live in the ways of God, which are the Proverbs, these wisdom sayings. And then what you start to get is you start to get rewards. And some of those rewards are heavenly and some of those rewards are earthly and they're all okay. And it was funny, as I was like really thinking, praying through this, how many times, because we we try so hard to reject this prosperity gospel that we sometimes think we're better masters to our pets than God is to us. 
that somehow God wouldn't reward his child who's seeking him, loving him, obeying him, desiring him, and that he wouldn't want to reward us with good things. And again, the main reward is just God, right? So we're not getting into anything weird, but also it's this thing about what happens is they built and they prospered, right? Because they were seeking God, they built and they prospered. So the question isn't whether God wants to reward you. The question is, what will you do with your reward? Because sometimes reward gets dangerous, right? We get reward and then we start to lose track. So John Wesley said it this way. He says, Christianity naturally begets frugality. Frugality naturally begets riches. (laughs) And riches in the end can destroy the very thing which began it in that path, right? Isn't that weird? So you can be a Christian, and because you're a Christian, you follow the word, you're frugal, you save, you invest wisely, you give, you do all these things, and what happens? You increase. And as you increase, your heart can start to shift away from God to the reward. And so it's this weird thing that we have to keep our hearts close to God, but God wants to reward those who obey him. And the funniest thing about this, friends, is God rewards non-Christians who obey him. There's a common grace that operates in the world. If you love your family, serve them, sacrifice for them, there is a general blessing on the world from God toward those people. If you're honest and you're kind, and that's why you meet sometimes that are like, you meet a non-Christian who is better than a Christian, you know. You've got two neighbors, one's a Christian, one's a non-Christian. You're like, dude, that guy's a better husband to his spouse than... And their family seems blessed. Why is that? It's because in many ways they're operating by these principles. So they built and they prospered. You have to know as you seek God, God wants to reward you. God wants to reward you. And and this is a thing, friends. This is about the character of God. It's not about the result. This is about who is God. Is he a good father? A good father gives gifts to his children. That's what Jesus said. And when his child asks him for bread, does he give him a stone? No. God's a good father. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin from the cities he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with him. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa. And they sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. So what did they do with their reward? Part of their reward were the spoils of the victories they won. What did they do? They brought an offering to God from their reward. And what does God do? God loves that. When God gives you something and you give him in return and then he gives you and you give him, I mean, it's like this circle of beautiful generosity is who God is. So they do this and then look at what they do. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And they made it pretty seriously because they said, whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death. Pretty serious. Whether young or old, man or woman, they swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought them with their whole desire. Love that statement. They sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them. (laughs) 
and the Lord gave them rest all around. So they have this huge thing, and what do they do in the midst of their reward, in the midst of victory? They make a promise to God to seek him all of their days. Reminds me of Joshua, who says, as for me and my house, we will worship God. They make this vow, this oath, and they celebrate it. And it's really amazing because this is probably one of the few revivals in the Old Testament that happens um, not out of like despair or lack, but out of abundance. Isn't that cool? Like God can call you to himself and he can bring this refreshing renewal, this revival out of goodness as much as he can bring it out of despair. Why is that? Is because if God is blessing your life, if you're finding success, if you're seeking him and he, and he meets you in that, gratitude can lead you to greater faithfulness. Gratitude. You don't always have to have something bad happen in your life to propel you into seeking God. You might be in the best place you've ever been in and in that moment, God is calling you to seek him. <laughs> He's calling you to remember. He's calling to give him the glory. He's calling you to stay in the game with him, right? And he's saying, listen, you don't have to wander away from me and have things go really bad to seek me again. No, no, no. In the midst of this place, you can actually have revival and they make a covenant of heart to seek him. And then it says, even Makah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother, he fired his mom, y'all. He fired her, (laughs) Because she made a detestable image. Think about the kind of conviction you have to have in your spirit to fire your mother. I mean, that's a rough dinner. Um, Thanksgiving that year was bad. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook of Kidron. When I first read that, I thought he meant he actually cut down his mom's image. But I think he means the image that she created. But I was like, the first I was like, whoa. He even took her picture and cut it up, burned it, buried it. I was like, wow. And then I was like, all right, you read that wrong. So anyways, but if you read that too, I was like, he's really serious about this. But the high places were not taken out, so he didn't quite finish the job. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa. He had 25 years of rest of abundance, of goodness. Isn't that beautiful? Unfortunately, there's a but (laughs) that starts in chapter 16. That I wish that were the end of the story, and it's not. And we're going to kind of work through that here in just a second. So I'm just going to read this and make a couple observations, and then we'll we'll wrap up with some application. In the 36th year, the reign of Asa, Bashah, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, of king, uh, the king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, there's a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Bashah, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. They conquered Ejon, Dan, Abelmaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Bashah had heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then the king Asa took all of Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Bashah had been building. And with them he built uh, 
Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army, the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars. Then King Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. Goes on to say in the chapter that Asa um, caught a disease of the feet and he died unrepentant. Whew, man, what an incredible story. And, and honestly, uh, I love a, a person said at one time, it, it's not that the Bible happened. That's not what makes the Bible true. It's that the Bible is happening right now. It keeps happening. These stories of human beings are happening right now in our lives. We know people who started strong, built their life well. God met them and they missed the finish line. They didn't finish well. And somewhere along the way, they got complacent. They got apathetic. They exited the game and they ended their life poorly. So that's what I want to talk about this, this morning. It's one, um, just a few things, right? One, faith is not a sprint, it's a marathon. <laughs> it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. I had a friend who ran a marathon and he's like, I got so jacked up, I literally like, <laughs> they, they was like, he's like, I sprinted the first mile and then just died. I think it was like a half, like the next 12 was like, Ugh, you know, but he's like, I was so pumped up. I didn't measure, right, what life was going to be like. And, and so this is just the overall thing is that faith is a marathon. It's your whole life. It's not a camp high. It's not just college. It's not just high school. It's not just the honeymoon stage. It is something that we need to last day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out for our whole life. We want to finish well. So it's a, a marathon, and we have to prepare for it like a marathon. You don't go zero to marathon, right? You go like, all right, I'm going to run to the end of my driveway and back. For me, that's pretty far. For you, it might be like 15 feet. So maybe the end of your cul-de-sac or, you know, or a street or whatever, right? And then you go, the next day, I'm going to do it again. The next day, I do it again. The next day, I'm going to run a little farther, right? So you start to build this up. And so I, I want to walk us through, what does this look like? Because there really is like a beginning, a middle, and end to our lives, Right? In the beginning, you're young and you have this pulse of energy. We have so many young people at Skyline here now, and I just want to bless that. I love it because you're just like fired up about life, and it's awesome. And for all us middle-aged people, we're like, get back in the game. Okay, come on. You can do this, right? I just, I love the passion for life, for career, for love, for all the stuff that's going to happen in life. I love it. But then there's the middle zone, right? You hit that midway point where you go, what happened? Right? Like, and, and it's just like, man, life either has gone really well, or it's gone poorly, or it's half and a half, or half, you know, cup's half empty, or whatever. And then you have the end of your life. What do you do with your final phase of life? What does life look like in the kingdom of Jesus when you hit that final phase? So first, for our young people this morning, I just want to tell you that God says, like Asa, to build a life of seeking the Lord. 
Like you have a chance right now to build your life with these building blocks of seeking God, like giving him your heart, giving him your time, giving him your resources, and you can build this foundation upon which you can build the rest of your life. But if you're not careful, you'll waste your 20s. Just having fun, messing around, hanging out, make some money, spend some money, and you'll get to your 30s and realize, like, oh man, I am, I'm behind, not my peers, I'm behind where God wanted me to be, where he wanted to take me, how he wanted to use me. And so now's a great time to build a life of seeking the Lord. I heard this story one time of a college professor got up and uh, he had this big jar and he's like, okay, is the jar empty or full? And everyone's like, empty. And he put a bunch of big rocks in it and he's like, is the jar empty or full? And they're like, it's full. And then he took a bunch of like small gravel and he poured it in and it filled in all the spaces. And he's like, is the jar empty? Is the jar full? And they all said, yeah. And then he took sand and he poured in the sand and it all filled in there. And he's like, is it full? And by that time they had gotten onto the ruse and they're like, nope, it's not full. He's like, you're right. He took water and he poured it all into the top and he's like, is it full? And they said, yes. And he said, what's the moral of the story? <laughs> I love this. They're like, you can always get more in. <laughs> love that. Like optimism, you can always get more in. He's like, no, 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 the moral of the story is that if the big rocks didn't go in first, you could never force them in later. The big rocks. What are the big rocks of life that we build to seek the Lord? And it, and it looks like this. <laughs> and it's funny because most of them are non-sexy, they're mundane, it's going to church, it's reading your Bible, it's having a group of friends who are seeking the Lord, it's serving and loving your neighbor, it's working hard at your job and being a person of integrity. Like all these things, these are like the big rocks that you get down early in life. And the problem is if you miss some of those, they will wreck you later. You may get away with it in your 20s, early 30s, but in your 50s, if those big things are not settled, you will blow up your life. So build a life to seek the Lord. I love 1 Corinthians says, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. I love it though. When you come together, Paul assumes that you will be corporately seeking God with a group of people. It's an assumption. It's not, it's not like something you do or you don't do. It's just like, if you're a Christian, you will have corporate worship embedded in your life. And it will be like brushing your teeth do you decide to brush your teeth this morning? Where you like wake up and go, should I brush my teeth this morning? What do you think? Do you like talk about it with your friend, your roommate? Like, what do you think? You gonna brush your teeth this morning? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. No, you're just like, you wake up, you go in there like, Rrr. I remember as a kid, I would go in the bathroom and turn the water on and just stand there. I was like, I spent as much time not brushing my teeth as brushing my teeth. And then I had cavities, right? So I learned my lesson. Now it's just a routine. I promise you, it's part of my life every morning, every night. I brush my teeth. Honestly, the, the fellowship of believers should be the same thing. It's like Sunday morning, as for me and my house, we worship the Lord. Is there worship taking place in the church today? We will be found in the house. It's not a choice. It's just, it's just we are doing this. Individually, you wake up in the morning and you go, who should receive my worship today individually? So corporately and individually, Jesus Christ is king. He's the Lord of my life. 
I turn on the worship music, I open my Bible, right? Maybe I call a friend and we hold each other accountable. Whatever it is, maybe I meet with somebody in the morning, we encourage each other, sharpen each other. Individually, I seek God. Hosea 10 says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up the fallow ground in your heart for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. So you build this life of seeking God. What if you're in the middle today, right? What if you're like 35 to 50, Here's what I want to tell you this morning. This phase of your life is all about this. I love this phrase. It's from Count Zinzendorf. Great name, Count Zinzendorf. Love that name. Um, anyway, sorry. He's a Moravian. He started this big revival. The main task of your middle-aged life is to fend off lukewarmness. With everything you have, spend all of your energy fending off lukewarmness, which looks like cynicism, which looks like apathy, which looks like complacency, which looks like sloth, which looks like I volunteered in the youth group in my 20s, I did the Sunday school thing, we did the young marrieds, now I just want to enjoy my life. Do a little better financially, we can take some trips, we can do some other things, and lukewarmness settles into your life. And God looks at us and says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, right? So we fend off lukewarmness. We actually take a look at our life and we become intentional about seasons and rhythms, right? So part of fending off lukewarmness doesn't mean we live at 100 out of 100 at all times. It's like, no, 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 there's seasons of life, seasons like Lent and Advent, right? There's, there's actually a church calendar that gives us a rhythm, and I love that in the church calendar, there's a whole swath of time that's called ordinary time. <laughs> it's okay to be ordinary. Jesus was very ordinary in most of his life, but there's seasons of time where he like set his face on Jerusalem. He said, I will not be deterred or diverted from this thing. There's other times where they're just walking around, hanging out with friends, having meals. But we understand when our spiritual temperature is starting to get low and we know how to engage to fend it off so that we never go below the place where we should go and we risk things we should never risk while off the battlefield. King David, what, what happened when he blew up his life? All of his men were on the front line of the battle. He was in the city living it up as the king, enjoying the fruits of spoils when God hadn't told him it was time for that yet. He disengaged. And as he's sitting there bored, right? So we tell, I tell young men all the time, temptation hits you most time when you're bored, when you're alone, when it's late at night, when you're, you know, like there's like these certain things in your life. You find David isolated and you find him bored. And what happens? Satan shows up with temptation, so in our middle age, we want to stay in the game. We want to stay engaged. There's different seasons of your life, right? So what does it look like? We've got little kids. I can't sacrifice seeking God because I've got small children. And I'm tired. I'm super busy. It's just going to look different. So in each stage of my life, I'm going to make a different plan how to seek God, how to stay in the game, how to fend off lukewarmness. Then there's special responses, right? There's seasons of life where you make an oath or a covenant to God to seek him, right? And I think one of the issues in our life these days is we can pretty much avoid most commitments, right? We can avoid, over, and we're really concerned about overcommitting ourselves, and so, which means a lot of times we commit to the wrong things. We make high-level commitments to things that aren't worthy of high-level commitments, and we make low-level commitments that are worthy of our whole life, right? 
And so we wanna do that, fend off lukewarmness, make a covenant with God. Maybe this morning you need to like re-up your oath to Jesus to love him with your whole heart. It's the first and greatest commandment. Just say, Jesus, I just wanna love you with my whole heart. And the last one, if you're in the last phase of life, we don't have as many of these people at Skyline, but I know some more these days, right? You're like 50 and above, finish well. How do you finish well? Because it is not guaranteed that you'll finish well. It's not guaranteed that your life will just keep going really good and you'll just kind of cruise on. Um, and, and friends, it's, it's one of the saddest things to watch somebody's life blow up in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Because you're just like, oh man, you're so close. So one of the things Richard Rollheiser, one of my favorite authors, he talks about, you know, like the beginning of your life is getting your passions under control, like ordering your life is the first section. The, the middle stage is giving your life away. You've ordered your life, you've gotten under control, you can give your life away. The last stage of your life is giving your death away. Dying well, finishing well is the best gift you can give to your children, your grandchildren, to the church. To watch somebody live the last 30 years of their life as on fire, in love, engaged with Jesus as they were when they were 20 is one of the most inspiring things you'll ever see. We had a lady come and do our staff retreat when I was a youth pastor. She was 88 years old. She had spent 35 years on the mission field in Japan and the most joyful, loving, kind, alive woman I've ever met. She's 88. And she was just like loving Jesus in the game, discipling women, traveling the world. She's 88 years old. She's like, there's no retirement. That's heaven. Heaven is retirement. She's like, I'll get a, I'll get a break when I go meet Jesus. It was such a, such a cool thing. Um, I think of Annie's, Annie's grandpa who sold his business when he was 50. And he didn't retire and play golf. He spent the next 35 years or so serving on the Billy Graham crusade team going to every city where they had crusades and serving people, training them how to pray, how to lead people to Jesus and giving his life that way. It wasn't like, oh, now I get to play golf and I get to live for myself. It's like, no, 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 now I've just entered a new phase in which I can serve Jesus and newer, freer, and and in some ways, more uh, joyful ways. Amen? So I want you to stand to your feet. I'm gonna ask the band to come back up. We're gonna pray. So I just want to encourage you, like, whatever phase you're in, to ask the Holy Spirit today, hey, what does this look like? Right? If you're in your early 20s, early 30s, like, how do I build a life of seeking God that I can sustain for the next 50 years? Right? What does it look like for me to engage in practices and rhythms and routines that will sustain my life, build my life on the rock, (laughs) so that when the winds and waves of life come, my house won't fall? If you're in that middle zone, you say, man, I understand lukewarmness. I know how easy it is just to get cruising along in life and just let a year go by or two years and not really grow or to just let the fire grow dim. What does it look like for you to fend off lukewarmness? What does it look like for you to like re-engage your heart in the kingdom of Jesus? And maybe if you're in that last phase, what does it look like for you to give your final phase of life to Jesus, to his church, to live in a way that demonstrates that God isn't done with people after a certain age, right? And that's what I love about revival. Joel 2 says, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. Young men will dream dreams and old men will see visions. They'll prophesy. 
servant girls. He, he just crosses all the things. He says, you know, no, it doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. In the kingdom of Jesus, you have a role to play. If you have breath in your lungs, God wants to use you here and now. Amen. So I'm going to invite our prayer team up to come. And so um, if you're in one of those phases and you're just like, hey, I feel God burning something in my heart. I just want somebody to pray for me, seal that. Um, or if you have any prayer need in your life, if someone in your life right now is far from God, if you need healing physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, we love to pray for people. We would hate for this day to go by and for you to not be encouraged, comforted, or built up in the spirit. Amen. So Jesus, we love you. We worship you today. I thank you for your word. I pray for all of us, God, whether we're in the building phase, whether we're in the phase of fending off lukewarmness, or whether we're in the phase of finishing well. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to our hearts today? Would you give us hope and courage to persevere in this walk, in this life where we know we will have troubles? But Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So we believe that today, Jesus, and we receive it with glad hearts in your name. Amen. Let's sing.